This is Until All Are Free. I'm your host, Preston Goff. The BR-116 is the second longest highway in all of Brazil. It runs its way from Jaguaro, which sits right on the southern border where Brazil meets Uruguay, all the way up to the coastal town of Fortaleza. At nearly 2,800 miles, or 4,500 kilometers long, it winds its way through the bustling metropolis cities of Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo, as well as densely forested areas and small, scarcely populated towns throughout the country. If you perform a Google search on the highway, you're certain to find articles, blog posts, and videos highlighting how treacherous the road's weather can be. In fact, one portion of the BR-116 between Curitiba and Sao Paulo is known as the Highway of Death. Until recently, I didn't have a reason to know anything in detail about the Brazilian highway system. But by recommendation from a friend, I picked up a book called Highway to Hell, The Road Where Childhoods Are Stolen. It's written by a British journalist named Matt Roper, and it gives testimony to another dark trait that this extraordinarily long road exhibits. It's a gateway for the sexual exploitation of thousands of Brazil's youngest. So here to share more with us about the BR-116 and the nature of trafficking and exploitation in Brazil and the young victims and survivors that he has encountered is Matt Roper. Um, I'm, I'm my profession as a journalist, although I, was, I worked in Brazil before I, I uh, was a journalist. But at the moment, my profession as a journalist, I'm a feature writer at, uh, the, for the Daily Mirror newspaper at the moment, which is one of the main national newspapers in the UK. Um, that's kind of my job, but I, I, at the same time, I'm also coordinating the work of, of our non-profit, Minina Danza. Um, I'm in the UK at the moment, but I've, I've only just come back a couple of years um, just before the pandemic. I think probably half of my life on and off I've spent in Brazil beginning uh, when I was in my early 20s. Yeah, certainly. I, I wonder if we might be able to start there with the audience because, you know, I mean, there's so many stories that I want to I wanna talk about, but I think it's helpful to begin with just, you know, what were the initial circumstances that led you to Brazil in the first place? I must say that I'm now in my kind of late mid to late 40s so it was a long time ago mm. uh, it all started I was at university um, in uh, Sussex University in Brighton on the south coast of England and I was studying music I had gone there to study music my I wanted to be a musician a singer a pianist uh, but over the course of of the, my studies I became less interested in music and more interested in human rights, social issues, uh, became involved in political campaigns. Um, there was one book, though, that really got to me. It was by a Brazilian journalist called um, Gibilto de Menstein, and he wrote a book called uh, Girls of the Night. And it was about, he'd gone to the Amazon region of, of Brazil and um, documented the trafficking and, and enslavement of of young girls, often who were kidnapped in their poor uh, slums and transported to, to remote mining towns deep in the middle of the Amazon jungle. And um, as I read these stories, it just kind of rocked me. And I knew I needed to do something about it. Uh, feeling this tremendous sense of urgency, I nearly 
abandoned my course altogether. But I kind of hung on till the end and then almost immediately afterwards got a plane to Brazil and got off in a town called Santarém in the middle of the Amazon jungle. Um, kind of, it's almost dead center in the middle of the Amazon region of Brazil. And that's how I set foot in Brazil for the first time. Um, and I ended up staying in the Amazon region for six months. Now, I wouldn't recommend, hmm. you know, people be, anyone be kind of so precipitous. Yeah, you know, certainly. In, in that kind of way. Um, and I soon, you know, my, I had this kind of, um, this, this notion that I'd arrive, sweep into these mining towns in the middle of the Amazon jungle and rescue these girls from, from slavery. And I quickly um, realized that, I, I mean, I, I couldn't string a sentence together. I didn't speak the language. Uh, you know, it yeah. would have probably been a lot more sensible for me to have planned, prepared myself, learned the language, done some training, and then gone off to Brazil. But I arrived kind of um, in just, just, uh, just impulsive and on a whim, mm. just wanting to respond in some way, knowing I needed to respond in some way to the stories that I'd heard, just wanting to rescue girls from this situation that I'd been reading about and ended up um, in a remote town in the Amazon jungle with no language, uh, no experience, and, um, you know, realising that I wasn't going to rescue girls from slavery. I couldn't even go down to the post office and mail a letter. But at some point, I, I realised that I needed some kind of training. I needed, if I was going to stay in Brazil, I needed to to link up with another organisation and learn the basics um, from from another organisation. So I found a project in Belo Horizonte, which is a long way from the Amazon, it's, mm. um, right in the southeast of Brazil, um, a, a project that was working with street children. And they were doing a course, so I decided to go down there, and uh, eventually I began working for their street team. And eventually I was the only... Uh, person that I was the lead, the lead in, of the street team there and so I began um, getting to know the kids living on the streets of a big city a completely different world to, to the town I was in surrounded by either rainforest or, or river it was a huge metropolis the third biggest city in Brazil now during the course of that time I began to see the, the boys would get up and head over to the day center but the girls wouldn't Mm. Sometimes they would, but often they wouldn't. And I begin to, began to see a real problem there. One, the project and any other project in that town at the time, in the, in the city at the time, was was focused on boys. So they played football and they did things that boys like to do. Um, and not it wasn't focused on, there wasn't activities particularly um, that girls would be that interested in. But I also saw that... Um, the girls they were more attached to the street they were more the, the pull of the street was greater on the girls for a number of reasons one is just the the fact that they were girls and their emotional attachment to to drugs to boyfriends to sex to that life to that gang life was was harder to break the girls just became just hopelessly addicted to crack 
and they'd be, and I wouldn't see them anymore. And I spent weeks and weeks trying to find the girls, uh, and I couldn't find them in any of the places where they'd sleep with the boys. Um, every now and again, I might see them, a flash of one running down the street after she'd stolen a necklace from a woman or something. Um, and then I, I decided to go into the favelas, mm. and I began to find the girls in the crack dens in these favela slums. Just They would just spend... They'd go to the streets to steal and then head back up to there in these really dangerous places, these vulnerable girls who were like 9, 10, 11... Um, smoking crack, and then it was at that point I I I, I realised that I needed to do something different for these girls, otherwise we'd lose them. Um, and so, with some other friends who were involved, uh, we we decided to start our own day centre for girls, just for girls. And so we rented this house in the centre of the city, and we painted it bright pink. Yeah, and we. We, we, we organised um, all the things that we knew the girls would like to do. So there was a, there was a dance room with a huge um, wall-to-wall mirror. Uh, there was a, 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 a salon where they could do their hair, you know, uh, and all the activities we, we, we put on there were, were especially for girls. And it worked, and the girls began wanting to spend instead of spending time on the streets or in the crack dens, they wanted to dance and they wanted to do their hair and they wanted to be in that place where they knew that they were safe. Yeah. And there were people there who, who they could speak to and they could trust. And that was really the, the birth of this idea that we could use dance as a way of reaching. Girls were really on the edge or, or even already over the edge um, that we could... Uh, show them their true worth, their true beauty, their potential. They, they could raise their self-esteem, could empower them. So for me, I always look back on that time as like a, a, a time of real learning for what was to come, which I didn't know the time was to come. There's one particular girl called Bruna, and... Uh, I would wake her up every morning underneath a viaduct in a crack, as a viaduct just where crack users were there. And she was 11 years old. Um, And I'd wake her up and she was just encrusted in dirt and, 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 and she'd spent the night awake and she was using crack herself. And I managed, again, the idea of having a safe space where, where the girls were able to come and, and knew that they were safe and there were people who really liked them and wanted the best for them made a huge difference. And the fact that we would like put up, risk our own lives often at night, going into these places and sitting with them playing cards or talking um, was, was what really, um, you know, won them over. I remember taking, uh, eventually persuading Bruna to go home. And I took her on the bus. I woke her up one morning. I remember this really clearly, just waking her up, gathering all the things together, get on the bus with her, and then travelling all the way to a town called Gufanador Valadares, um, which, incidentally, was where the next 
phase of Menina Danza began, uh, which I'll tell you about later. And um, and taking her back home. And I left her there and uh, lost contact. And I'm telling you the story because about five years ago, she got in touch with me again. Mm, okay. And, yeah, she was out of the blue. She said that she'd... Um, She'd tried for for years and years to try and find me again. And I think the last thing I sp- said to her was, please make me proud and, you know, do your best. And this girl is today one of my best friends. She's got three children. Um, she held on to that last word and, and promised herself that she would one day make me proud. And then at the age of 30-something... She got back in touch, and um, she said that if it wasn't for the work that we'd done there, she would have been dead. And instead, she's gone to university. She's um, she's 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 started a family. She's she's working. She's got a great job. And so you know, although it was a an apprenticeship in a way, that time uh, we did. One, we learned an awful lot that we needed to learn, but also lives were changed. In these early years, Matt committed his time to building relationships alongside young girls who were at a major risk of exploitation. He developed a better understanding of the lives of children who lived on the streets of Brazil. And this would radically shape the way that he interpreted the world around him. Eventually, Matt would relocate with his wife back to the UK, which is where he continues in the story. By now, I was a journalist uh, on the Daily Mirror, on the staff. I've been there for 10 years. Um, I just moved to a different position uh, as correspondent for the East of England. So I left London, went to live in the East of England with my wife, and and she was pregnant. We were just about to have a baby. Mm. Got a pay rise, company car. You know, it was. I was told it was a job for life. Um, I had no intention of revisiting the experience that I had in my 20s. Um, of going back, you know, getting involved in that that kind of work. Yeah. But I'd gotten to know a, a guy called Dean Brody. He was a he is a a, a well-known uh, con- Canadian country singer. Um, and he'd been in touch. We'd met up. We'd gone, I'd gone to, to to we'd met up in Canada and and over here. And and we decided he wanted to meet up in Brazil. Uh, so I so I could kind of show him around. And so we'd gone on this kind of road trip uh, through the state of Minas Gerais, the state that where I used to, where I knew very well, um, to get to know, you know, the other side of Brazil, as opposed to Rio de Janeiro and the, the, the well-known parts. Um, we were at the end of the trip. We were just arriving um, in a town. It was two o'clock, about two o'clock in the morning. We'd been travelling for a long time. Just as we were arriving on the outskirts of town, I, we saw a girl standing on the side of the road. That's two o'clock in the morning. She was a tiny little thing. Um, she was wearing like a purple party dress. Mm. We just she, she just lit up in our headlines headlights as we as we drove towards the town. Um, she just looked so out of place. You know, in Brazil, tropical country, you get kids walking around on their own, particularly at night. Uh, but this particular girl just looked so young, and she looked like she'd been, that someone had fussed over her 
done her hair like as if she was going to church or a party uh, and she had this pretty little dress on mm. she was really thin and bony but she was just standing motionless it wasn't like she was walking from one place to another and um and so we decided to stop and and see what she, what if she was lost or what was going on before we even stopped this girl was tugging at the the rear handle of our car trying to get in okay this is two men in a car at two o'clock in the morning and a girl who looked at the age of nine ten was trying to get into the back right. and so we said look wait stop we just don't want to know what's good what, you know more about you i will get out of the car and so we got out of the car and stood in this patch of earth where she was where she'd been standing and asked what she was doing and she said well i'm doing i'm helping my mum and dad i'm doing programs programs is a way in brazil of saying i do prostitution mm. right um people pay for programs um and uh and i said well you know when she said her mum and dad i thought they were nearby i said where are they well, and she pointed to a, a slum, like up, up a hillside behind her. She said, oh, they must be sleeping by now. And so she proceeded to talk about her life. Uh, she said that she would every night uh, leave her home, come to the motorway and stand there and wait for truck drivers to pass by. And the tr truck drivers would stop, pick her up and then drive up into the darkness away from town and abuse her and then whenever they finished and they stopped they'd just throw her out and throw her out literally she showed us this the scars on her on her elbows where she would they would just launch her like a rag doll from the trucker's cabin and she'd land on the asphalt and there there she would then have to wait in the darkness um, for another truck to come by, pick her up, do the same thing, and bring her back. This was what she did night after night. That this was her life, and then she'd arrive back home and leave the money on the table for her for her parents. She was eleven, by the way, and her yeah. name was Layla. Yeah. Um, I asked her how much she charged, and she said, "Oh, I don't charge any more than I, I, I don't ever charge less than twenty-five reals." At the time, 25 reals was about 10 pounds, about 12, 13 dollars. Mm. Um, but she said that as if, she, you know. As if she were proud of that. That's right, yeah, she wasn't selling herself short. What I found out later was that that area of Brazil was really rich in precious stones, and that in other towns nearby, um, people would sell those precious stones by the side of the road. One single tiny precious stone was worth 100 reals. Yeah. No, so much more than this girl thought that she was worth. Right. So we we talked to her for a bit, and you know, our hearts breaking, and um, and then at some one point she said she needed to go, and she said, "Is there anything else you you want?" But, so I the only thing I could do was was say something that I that might help, and so I I said to her, you know, I just placed my hand on her shoulder and said, "Look." Layla, you're worth more than you can imagine, much more, more than you can ever imagine. Go home. Don't do this anymore. You deserve so much more. And, um, and then she's, I remember her smiling. She hadn't smiled until then. Mm. And it was, it, was, it was the first time 
it's probably the first time she'd realised that uh, we didn't want, we weren't there to do what every other man stops, stopped there to do. And she came and gave us a hug. And then we had to stand and watch this tiny, vulnerable young girl walk off into the haze and the smoke and the dust. She wasn't going home, of course. She was, she was carrying on with her night and knowing that she, she was just going off into another night of horrific abuse. And that was the earthquake moment for me. Yeah. You know, that was the moment that I knew that my life had, would never be the same again, that I, I could never just go back to my life on the newspaper, you know, my the, the life I was building for myself back in the UK after I'd been allowed into this girl's life. Um, Dean as well, who was with me, was absolutely devastated by this. And instead of heading down to Rio the next morning, we decided to investigate further. You know, we wanted to know if this was one girl, right. if it was a kind of an exception or if this was a bigger problem. Um, and the next morning, instead of heading north, uh, south, we, we headed north. And I don't know why. We just went through one town, next town, passed by so many towns and by... About six, seven hours later, uh, we arrived in a in a town called Medina, and we found a woman, one of those people that you that you mentioned, the amazing people who we found in so many towns, but often are, are the only ones yeah. fighting this problem on their own um, with no help. And 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 there we, she told us the reality of her little town, which was a town of you know, 18,000 people, but hundreds of girls, just like Layla, age 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, um, being exploited, often by their own parents. And this, and, and, and something that just becomes so normal that nobody noticed it anymore. Nobody thought that it was wrong. Everybody um, hoped that they would... I have a daughter because 10 years later after they'd been born she was a source of income and so I remembered that time when I was in my early 20s yeah. and how we'd somehow come across this method of showing girls how much they were worth yeah. and showing them that they could dream again and achieve their potential and so um, I, I remembered back at, at that time and realised that, that that's what we should be doing in these places where there was nobody reaching out, no other organisations, no other charities. These girls were completely on their own. When we first arrived in Medina and we opened our first pink house, we opened. Yeah. Same premise of bringing in the girls, teaching them to dance, raise their self-esteem, a safe place where they could do girl-focused activities. One of the first cases we came across was it was a 12-year-old girl and she was coming to the house, but she was kind of married to a 52-year-old man. Hmm. Everybody in the town knew about this. What happened was when she was uh, 10 years old, she'd been abused by this man who was a neighbour and her mother had gone to the police and then the man had run away um, and then come back when things had died down and took the girl to go and live with her. So one of the first things we did was bring Linda and Ace and her mother 
to the police station to to find out what could be done. You know, basically, she was being held captive right. by, an, by by this this old man. Although, yeah, because presumptively you know, the laws of Brazil don't allow for a 15-year-old to be married to a 52-year-old. No, oh, she was 12. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, and what happened was we arrived in the police station and explained the situation, explained that she'd been abused, that this police report had been made, and um, and now this man had taken her to live with her and she uh, felt compelled to live with her. Um, and the police chief turned around and said, well, at least it's not on the streets. Mm. No. Gosh. Uh, another story. Um, a bit later on, we found out that twelve, the two sisters, uh, aged twelve and fourteen, um, they'd been coming to our project, the Pink House, and and we discovered that they'd they'd moved from their pretty poor house to a better house in a better neighbourhood, and it soon transpired that the the mother ha- was paying the rent to the landlord by giving over to him her 12-year-old daughter. And um, he was a, an upright man, an upright man in town. Um, he, he owned a, a, a children's clothes shop, and yet he was accepting rent by abusing the girl's daughter. Yeah. That's a terrific story in itself. But then I talked to a local pastor and mentioned this particular uh, case because it was it was a, it was on my mind. And he's I remember him saying to me, um, "Oh yeah, I know, I know, I know them. I know the guy comes in with the with the twelve year old. Sometimes he comes to church, um, but at least he pays his tithe." God. <laughs> so. You know, this is what I mean, is that even those who are not involved in the exploitation and trafficking and enslavement of girls don't see it as a crime. They see it as a bit weird. Yeah. You know, they sometimes see it as something, you know, a, a bit of gossip, but they don't see it as in the way that, that they should do, as a horrific crime. Um. And in Kanjida Sales, a new, the, another town where we've started a new pink house, um, just to give one more example of this, yeah. a 13-year-old girl who was coming to the pink house broke her leg um, while she was playing in the, in, in the pink house. And the next morning, her mother turned up and, um, and demanded compensation. She turned up and said, look, my, my daughter has got a leg in plaster. So I can't take it to the brothel anymore. So you need to pay me the money that I would have earned. She, she, she didn't. She, didn't she just care about couldn't the see that that yeah. was anything that was wrong. Yeah. Um, and so you can see what we're up against. Our vision is to reach as many girls along the BR116s as, as our resources stretch to, and as many and open as many pink houses um, along those towns as, as the resources stretch to as well. And we've got four at the moment, mm. and uh, each one of them is is really making a huge difference in those particular communities and with the girls and their families. 
Um, but you know, as I as I as I said, we know that that's that's not enough. We need to be able to transform those communities as well. So we're fighting on different fronts. Yeah. Um, as well as the pink houses, which are there to build up the girls and empower them and 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 and, and change their the, the way they see themselves, we also work with the families. Um, we we have what we call counterculture campaigns, which are campaigns within the towns, uh, often with the girls themselves who go out and dance on the on the streets and in events, uh, which looks to 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 change the mindset of the local people. Yeah. Um, we are involved in legal interventions as well. Uh, so those in those places and in the pink house, often the girls begin to open up about their lives and the abuses that have happened to them. Often they get to the point of wanting justice yeah. for their lives. Yeah. And so um, when we can, we, we've, we've, we've um, brought their abusers to justice. Um, that is so important for the girls, um, for them to know that they are that they've 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 got justice. But it also has a deterrent effect, of course, in those towns, which is a way of changing the culture. Yeah. Um, and we've done a, we've started to do advocacy work on on um, on a local and a national and international level as well. Mm. So you know, it, it's 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 a multifaceted. Um, approach to to changing not just a, a, a single girl or a family but a community as well now one really exciting thing that's happening something that i would never have imagined in my wildest dreams would would happen 10 years or so after we first met Layla on the side of that road yeah is um that we've got a a uh one of brazil's biggest haulage companies uh, with who have thousands and thousands of trucks and mm-hmm. and truck drivers working for them, and they're, they're they're coming on board as one of our main partners. What's going to happen is they're going to help implant more pink houses as well. Wow! But also, they want their truck drivers to be agents of change in Brazil by um, training them up, uh, making them aware. So that they they can be the ones who report and see um, and, uh, and and report instances of of child sex exploitation on the motorway. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So that's going to be coming soon in the next year or so. We're talking about it now. It's all been um, uh, signed off. Um, but but just to think that you know the a a a a company and one of the biggest in South America. Uh, will be working with us, um, changing the the mindset of their workers, their truck drivers, and and them coming on board as as agents of change and the transformation as well is incredibly exciting for us. Yeah, that's um that's really exciting news. That's that's fantastic to to think that suddenly like within the motorway itself, you have all of these agents of good, like you said, agents of change that are really ambassadors um, for for the good work of, of changing that mindset and changing that culture. That's beautiful. I have one final question for you as we kind of wrap up. And I ask this of of anyone who's involved in, in survivor advocacy or the work of intervention. You know, there's a, there's a thing called secondary trauma that can happen in relationship um, with 
with people who suffer from traumatic experiences or in relationship to just really dark, complicated work. And I'm just curious to know, like, um, what keeps you personally encouraged in the midst of this? Um, what are the what are the the moments, the the things that you recall that keep you um, hopeful <laughs> on days when it's hard to be hopeful? We're seeing lives being changed. I mean, um, recently we asked some of the girls to send in videos. Some of them weren't even, they'd moved away from town, but they'd been helped by us for a few years and then they left. And um, and those girls sent in those those videos from where they were, you know, just recording on their mobile phones. Mm. And, um, and they, you know, very clearly um they 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 credit minion dancer for for keeping them alive yeah. and and bringing them hope and so they were saying i don't know i don't even know if i'd be alive today if it wasn't for the pink house um there was one girl it's only two days ago where i received a a message from this particular girl and you know how i've told you that rescue is often two steps forward and one step back or even more steps back this is the case of this particular girl she was at the age of 10 um made by her mother to go around the houses of old men in town with a little letter saying if you give me a bag of rice i'll you can you can do this or that to me the age of 12 she was she was already a mother when I first arrived in Medina, the year after I first met Layla, I visited a, a brothel close to town, and she was there. She was there with a the baby. When we opened the pink house, she came along, but she was incredibly difficult. She smoked crack in the, in the toilets, mm. and she pimped out the girls. There was one time I arrived there, opened the door at leaving time, and there was a man standing on the corner of the road outside. And he was waiting for his package, his, his, the, the, the girl that she had promised to him. This was the final straw. And we banned her for three months from the house. And that was the moment she really began to change when she, suddenly the warmth and the love and the care that she'd been receiving wasn't there anymore. And um, this girl went from strength to strength, but also fell away and then sometimes went back to the motorway and the and the brothel and then came back and eventually we made her our uh, beauty salon person and we gave her a job in the pink house and she even today she 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 brings in girls and she does their hair makes them look beautiful and talks to them um, but recently she had another setback you know we're always dealing with these these little setbacks that she has. And then just the other day, she sent us this message um, after again another time of talking to her and, and, and bringing her back, showing her that this side is better than that side. And she, she said, um, you know, I wouldn't be alive today if it wasn't for you. You know, thank you for, for, for always being with me even when I don't deserve it and showing me that there's a there's a that I'm loved and that I can do whatever I want and that was a message that I received two days ago from her and that makes it all the difference you know
A special thanks to Matt Roper and Menina Danza for the work that they're doing alongside survivors and the most vulnerable in Brazil. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your heart and vision with us on this podcast. It was just an absolute pleasure to be with you in conversation. Matt's book, Highway to Hell, is available at Barnes & Noble, as well as on Amazon, Google Play, and other major online bookstores. You can find a link to it on our website at theexodusroad.com podcast. Until All Are Free is a podcast by The Exodus Road, a nonprofit dedicated to the strategic and holistic fight against human trafficking. The podcast is hosted by me, Preston Goff, and the music you've heard on the intro and outro of this episode was produced and generously donated by City of Sound. You can support our show by continuing to share it with friends and family. We believe that everyone has a role to play in freedom, and we hope that this show helps inspire you to discover your place in the fight against trafficking. If you're listening to this episode on Apple Podcasts, I'd really love for you to take a moment to rate and review us. It really helps.